Well, let me give you some background as to where we are. We've gone through uh, Chapter 8. We just finished that up last week. And uh, just really in a, in a super breeze-by there, um, where we left Jesus and the disciples, what they, had got, they had just gotten into a boat, and they had gone across, and they ended up in Caesarea Philippi. And while they are in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus has some really disturbing words for the disciples. And because of the disturbing words that they heard about Jesus having to you know, suffer, die, and he'll rise again and all of that, the next scenario that Mark gives us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit is the, what's called the transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John are taken away from the rest of the twelve, and they're taken up on a mountaintop with Jesus, and again, this is old information, and they have this spectacular occurrence um, this, this still is what we're tracking on uh, today, called the Transfiguration. And in a nutshell, I believe, and again, I could really be wrong there, and there's certainly more to say about the Transfiguration than what I said last week, but remember, the Word of God is inexhaustible. All right. So even if I ever felt like I really just you know, wrung everything out of a particular passage that I could, I know from, from many years of experience in reading through the Bible that going through it again some other time, it's like, wow, where did that come from? How did I never see that before? And that's just the nature of God's Word. So we can't exhaust it. So they received bad news. They needed encouragement. They get the encouragement on the Mount of Transfiguration because it's basically a sneak peek of the kingdom. And now in verse 9, we pick up Mark chapter 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen, at least until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So, littles, Jesus tells Peter, James, and John that they have to keep a secret. Have you ever had to keep a secret? Have you ever been told, maybe it's for a brother or a sister or for a cousin, that you know we've got these birthday plans for them, but shh, it's a secret we don't want them to know, and, and I know you don't want to spoil it for them. Okay, Is it easy keeping a secret? That's a birthday or something like that. Maybe it's even more spectacular, right? Somehow you found out, you're the older sibling, that you're going to Disney in a few weeks. But shh, don't. Tell your younger brothers and sisters. We want it to be a surprise. Good luck with that, right? It's hard to keep a secret, especially a really, really good secret that you know everybody would enjoy hearing about. Well, Peter, James, and John had just witnessed in the Transfiguration, now I'm referring to, what is arguably the most spectacular vision ever And I would want to shout it out to everyone that I saw. But Jesus orders them. He didn't ask them. Jesus orders the three. It's a secret. You can't tell anyone. What about the rest of the, 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 you know, our our compadres? What about the posse? What about the rest of the twelve? No. Don't say anything. Until I rise from the dead. What is up with that? Well, let's remember what the problem has been all along in this gospel concerning Jesus doing miracles 
Miracles that range from, from we've, we've seen them all, from healing people to casting out demons and even raising people from the dead. The crowds did what? The crowds gravitated toward the miracles. That's understandable. If, if that were happening today, it would happen. And in fact, where it supposedly does, that's exactly what happens. That's understandable. But they were more enamored with the miracles than they were with the miracle worker who came not to bring thy kingdom come. He did not come to bring that first time a kingdom of perfection on earth. That's for another age. That's for another epoch. This time, Jesus was there specifically to be our substitute in all things that God requires of each and every one of us. And he knows that we could not do. And so he did it for us. If we go back now just a half a chapter to see and to hear Peter blasting Jesus for talking such defeated language of suffering and death, it kind of makes sense because here was their hope and now he's telling them, no, he's going to die. He's going to be tortured. He's going to suffer. And he's going to be executed. And in tax on, hey, he's going to rise from the dead. And so what happens? Jesus in turn blasts Peter. Because if Jesus doesn't fulfill the suffering and death on a cross, littles, on a cross... Look at your sheet. There will be no future kingdom of perfection for anyone. So Jesus is constantly trying to steer everyone's attention to the matter at hand, not the matter of the future. So the transfiguration comes along, which is the most revealing vision, if we put it this way, of another world, specifically thy kingdom come. And if the word gets out, it's only going to escalate the fervor for the reigning Messiah and reinforce the already mistaken notion that the reason the Messiah had come was to establish his kingdom and his kingship there and now. Again, this is all by way of review. So naturally, Jesus tells the three, don't say anything about what you saw and heard until I have fulfilled the substitutionary life, suffering, death, and resurrection from the dead. Why? Because everything else, think about the title today, because everything else is a distraction to the very reason for Jesus' coming. What is patently obvious in Mark's gospel is the supreme priority of the work of Christ on our behalf, which accomplishes our eternal life and everything else that flows out of that and everything that everyone expects of kingdom life. But if you lose the priority of why Jesus came the first time, you won't look forward to thy kingdom come Because you won't be a part of it. Remember the horrific words of Jesus that we've talked about in the recent past from Matthew and Luke's Gospels, recording Jesus saying to those who thought they were all set with the man upstairs, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Ka, boom. So Jesus, knowing man, says, mum's the word about what you saw and what you heard on the mountaintop. As wonderful as it was, it too, it, even that too, could, not even could, but would become a distraction from the mission at hand. After telling them to keep quiet about the transfiguration until the Son of Man rises from the dead, in verse 10 of Mark, we are told something that again doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The disciples seized upon the statement Jesus just made, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. What do I mean? Why that doesn't make sense? Why didn't that make sense? Well, this is really curious. Because remember, these three in particular, Peter, James, and John, they themselves witnessed Jesus raise Jairus' daughter and witnessed most or all of the miracles. And the disciples had no problem with the fact that their mighty king, that their Messiah was not bound by something as frivolous as death. That was perfectly consistent in keeping with the idea of the ruling reigning king when he would come. Raising people from the grave was consistent with the divine plan for Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. But what wasn't expected was that their own king, Messiah, would himself, he would himself have to experience resurrection as well. Okay, but that sounds like a good thing. Well, but wait a minute. In order to experience resurrection, he would have to be dead. Now, if one who raises the dead, if, I should say, if the one who raises the dead is dead, who raises him? He couldn't raise himself. So this is confusing, which takes us back to Peter excoriating Jesus for telling them that he too must suffer and die. And rise again. So, again, there, there's way more here than, than I could possibly go into, which is a pastor's way of saying that uh, I have no clue about the rest of this, but it sounds really good. So, just being candid. But there is gobs of theology here that is bound up in the whole idea now of what it means to have a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Union, without fusion, distinction, without separation. Verse 11. So they asked Jesus, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, I know this gets a little disjointed because I'm taking it in such small segments at a time. But if we read through the flow here, what seems obvious is there's like this this remarkably uh, clear changing of the subject on the part of the disciples. So, does their question, what about Elijah, does that emanate possibly from a place of embarrassment? What I mean by that is that they are so befuddled by the transfiguration, but even more befuddled by the idea of their long-foretold 
conquering king having to suffer and die. That's the real bugaboo. They just they can't wrap their heads around that one. And so they don't want to come right out and ask again, Jesus, what does this all mean? And remember again, at this point, it's still just Peter, James, and John who are alone with Jesus. So instead, possibly, so instead of just asking outright, they try perhaps a backdoor approach to the subject of resurrection, hoping Jesus will answer the question that they dare not ask. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, why is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I don't know if you ever caught that. I didn't, see, I don't catch so much of this when I'm just reading through the Bible over the years until I really sit down and start digging away at it. But Jesus, right there in verse 12, asks the very question that the disciples have. And so to them it seems like, well, you know what, maybe our backdoor approach to asking the question we didn't want to ask and look foolish again looks like it may have worked. If John the Baptist, who we know as Elijah, came to restore all things, why, does that, why then does the Messiah still have to die? It just doesn't fit. For the disciples... And for us, there is this, this cognitive dissonance between what Elijah, again, John the Baptist, would accomplish when he comes. Namely, he will restore all things. So why then does Jesus have to die? Well, in the spirit of our church's plumb lines, those things that capsulize what we believe and what we have always believed here at Faith and which are non-negotiable, plumb line number two is we let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let's go to the horse's mouth, so to speak, concerning the origination of the Elijah prophecy about him coming and restoring all things. It's found in the last book of the Littles Alert Bible. (laughs) Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. For behold, Malachi writes, The day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. All right, first note about the prophecy. This is a prophecy about the end of time when Jesus comes back for the second time, that time as king and judge. We continue. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, here it comes. I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. 
He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. By the way, that was the last written, recorded revelation of God to mankind for the next 400 years. In other words, there was a 400-year period of silence at the end of the book of Malachi, ending with those words in that prophecy. So, that's clear as mud, right? Oh, let's look at Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. In Luke chapter 15, the scene is that the angel of the Lord has now appeared and is talking to the man named Zacharias, who is going to be a father... In fact, he's going to be the father of John the Baptist. But John the Baptist is still in utero. This is what we read, Luke 1, Luke 1, 15 through 17. For he, John the Baptist, will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." So John is born, raised up to be God's preacher. And when John came, he came preaching what? Mark chapter 1 verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke chapter 3, verse 3, And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Acts 13, 23-24, From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Acts chapter 19, verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is, in Jesus. So, Malachi's prophecy is both a warning and an assurance. It's a warning to those who do not repent and do not come to the Savior of mankind, and that to reject Him is to reject one's very salvation and eternity with Christ. It's a warning, but it's also an assurance. It's an assurance that Elijah, also known now, we know, as John the Baptist, when he comes, will beckon, he will beg, he will implore people everywhere to turn from their rebellion against the God of the universe who is in their midst and who is ready to receive all who would come to him but come to him his way on bended knee. Back to our text. Verse 12. Jesus says, Why? Why is it written of the Son of Man? that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. The disciples got to be going, Yes, it worked! He's going to answer our question. 
going through the back door. It worked. We got him, man. We manipulated that Jesus. Woo! Get ready. Verse 13, But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. <laughs> come again, Jesus. Their faces just had to be crestfallen. Because he didn't answer their question. Rats! We're that close! Now, what I'm not sure of is why Mark seems to make Elijah's identity with John a bit cryptic. Because Matthew is quite clear in his report of the same incident. Matthew writes in Matthew chapter eleven fourteen, if you are willing to accept it, here it is, flat out there. If you are willing to accept it, John the Baptist himself is Elijah who was to come. Bottom line, Peter, James, and John are still left hanging. Or at least it seems so. Why resurrection you, Jesus? They grabbed onto that statement and they couldn't get over it. Now, there's an interesting pause here, in a manner of speaking, in the thought after verse 13. And yet, each one of the gospel writers that touch on this have it the same way. Mark 14 through 19. All right, so now, when Peter, James, and John came back to the disciples, so that now they're all reunited, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed and they began running up to greet Him. And Jesus asked them, What are you discussing with them? Them being the scribes. And one of the crowd, interestingly, not one of the disciples, not one of the apostles, one of the crowd answered Him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams into the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and he stiffens right out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. Jesus' reply is again rather shocking. Jesus answered them, and said, well, let him not suffer any longer. Bring him up here, please. That's why I'm here. Let me take care of all this, and we'll be on the way, and people will celebrate and rejoice. No, that's not what it says. Jesus answered them and said, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Given what we've seen from chapter 1 right up until now, how would you, how would you interpret this? Jesus is clearly perturbed. I don't, you cannot read that any other way. Jesus is annoyed. no. Not my Jesus. My Jesus never gets annoyed. I know. That's why you're pretty well clueless. 
Because if you were reading your Bible, you'd know Jesus and what he was like in all ways. Even the hard things. But about what is Jesus perturbed? Ah, that is the key question here in this passage. What is Jesus perturbed about? Don't overlook what Jesus asks as he comes in to this scene here. What did he ask? What are you discussing? Actually, that's a, that's a, a really flimsy translation. Rather, what are you arguing about with the scribes? Remember, we've met the scribes earlier, and they are not good guys. They are antagonists. They are hypocrites. They hate Jesus. They're not looking for information or for answers. They're not seeking truth. They're seeking for a head on the platter, so to speak. Given the answer that Mark records for us, apparently what they were arguing about had something to do with the failed attempt of the disciples to heal a man. Now that's at first blush. So why is this important? I believe Jesus tells us in his aggravated reply. First thing he does is he asks a rhetorical question that seems to come out of nowhere. What does he ask? How long shall I be with you? Huh? Wait, what's that, what's that got to do with the situation at hand and this man is demonized in the crowds and everything else? And I could be wrong. But could it be that Jesus was perhaps hopeful, perhaps he was optimistic that the discussion, actually the argument, was about God incarnate, that is the Savior of mankind, and who He really is, and why He came. In other words, maybe He was hopeful here that the argument was about people who were seeking real answers. But instead, it's about a stupid, botched attempt to heal yet one more of thousands of other afflicted individuals rather than about the one come to secure life eternal. Ah. Hmm. And so yet again, a healing comes as an intrusion, a common theme every step of the way in this gospel. The healing comes as an intrusion into the hallowed incident. Remember, this is right on the heels of the transfiguration and all that that meant. And Jesus is not happy. Verse 19 again, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring them to me. One more distraction from what really matters. little illustration here that uh, I just became more knowledgeable of a couple of days ago. I was very vaguely familiar what was is is called the Bethel movement. 
I just, I'm just curious. Anybody even know what the Bethel movement is out of Redding, California? Okay. Well, it's a big deal in Christendom. In fact, it's the cover story on Christianity Today, current issue. And the Bethel community, as it's called, headed by lead pastor Bill Johnson, uh, is controversial, to say the least. Um, one individual who lives in Reading, who has gone to the church, and by the way, the person writing this article, who's of a PCA background, went out there and spent several days out there and going to the church and talking to people and all of that. And it was a, I felt it was quite a, a balanced article um, because there were some really good things that are taking place there. But overall... You know, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. It's all about signs and wonders. In fact, when you go to their website, supposedly, I, I went to their website, and candidly, I didn't see this, but according to the article, they have a, uh, uh, what do you call it, a link or tab or whatever, that chronicles all the healings and miracles that have taken place here at the Bethel community, which, by the way, is about 8,500 people strong right now. And growing. But this person from Reading who lives out there and has attended there and all that says in the preaching and teaching, there is never a call for repentance or faith in Christ. Never, he underscores. It is all about, he continues, signs and wonders. There's nothing new under the sun. Back in the, the mid-90s, remember the, you might remember the Toronto movement, and then the Brownsville movement down in Florida, and the same thing was happening over in England with all the signs and wonders and various iterations and variations on a theme. But one of the unique aspects, according to this article, is the practice of grave soaking or has, goes by two things, or grave sucking. You say, what in the world is that? Well, supposedly, some, or they teach, or they believe, I don't know, in the practice of what they call grave soaking, where they find the grave of a noted Christian, someone with an, you know, a great reputation, for for the anointing. That's a buzzword in Pentecostalism and all of that. And they lay themselves on the grave believing that the anointing on that Christian somehow now assumes to them. Oh, balderdash. <laughs> Just one more distraction. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Well, they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It is often thrown him into the, both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Now, I need you to, to just kind of 
If you need to, stand up in place and just take a deep breath because this is going to get a little heady here for a minute. All right. Thank you. (laughs) If, this is the Father speaking, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, kind of a strange response again. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. All right, here is the salient question. To whom is the statement referring, or to whom is the statement given? The statement I'm referring to is, all things are possible to him who believes. Don't answer this too quickly. Because the standard is posi- has to be wrong, and you'll see why. All things are possible to him who believes. The father of the boy, it's the father of the boy who asks if you, let's insert Jesus, because that's who he's asking, Right? If you, Jesus, can. If you, Jesus, can do anything at all, would you help us? Jesus interrupts, I believe again, with a sense of a little sense of indignation. If you, meaning if I can, you're asking me if I can do anything here to help this? The Father is questioning Jesus' ability. Jesus answers now. All things are possible to him who believes. Okay, now. For whom is that statement? All things are possible to him who believes. For whom is that statement meant? Is it meant for the one praying who would be Jesus, or is it meant for the one asking for the prayer, who in this case is the Father? If it's the one praying, Jesus, it's already a done deal then, right? We know that. It's Jesus, for Pete's sake. I mean, if you can. But if it's referring to the one doing the requesting, that's a different story entirely. Immediately the boy's father cries out and says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Now this confuses it even more. But let's stop. The father's reply makes us think that the question and the statement is referring to the one requesting. That would be the Father. But that's not how Jesus answers, because if you can, was clearly referring, obviously, to Jesus. That much is clear. Furthermore, look at what happens next. When Jesus saw that a great crowd was rapidly gathering... Remember what Jesus has done from the beginning of this gospel? Whenever there was a miracle of some kind or another, what was it? Was it to, whoa, a lot of people are gathering around. Let's just hang on here a while so we can get more and more people. Or was it to avoid the limelight? 
It's to completely avoid the limelight. Verse 14. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. If you can, all things are possible to the one who believes. Both of those statements, the question rather and the statement, are both, they can only be directed at Jesus, the one doing the praying. Why is that hugely significant, especially in light of the illustration I just used about the Bethel movement, which is just one of many, many, many over, over the eons of Christendom and church history? And I know this from first-hand experience that when an individual comes up and asks for prayer and they are prayed for and nothing happens in the worst situations which is common in Pentecostal ism and I want to make sure you understand the ism there it means Pentecostal to a hyper or illegitimate degree And we have people here at this church who came here many years ago as refugees, their word, from a Pentecostal-ism of abuse. Meaning, if you came up and you asked for prayer and we just prayed for you and you didn't get healed, you know what the problem is? You don't have enough faith. So you need to go back and work on things, and you need to get your faith built up, and you need to stop doubting, and you need to just blah, 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 and they just keep pounding away. And you walk away going, oh, I know, if I just had enough belief and faith, I'd be healed, everybody failed. But this has to do with the one praying. Meaning, if the one praying has enough faith, Not the one receiving, but the one praying. And in the context, we're talking about Jesus. So in our context today, the one doing the praying doesn't have to also walk away flogging himself. The person wasn't healed. It's all my fault. I got doubt in my soul. I got fit in my soul. It didn't work. The healing appears like the others do, as a distraction, as a tangent to the very purposes of Emmanuel coming. But because Jesus is a God of grace and compassion, annoyed though he may be, he casts out the demon in the boy, not waiting for more people but in fact, the way the text reads, before there are even more witnesses. It is so profoundly clear how routinely and across the board, the miraculous, which is so highlighted today, which churches are built on, and some of the fastest growing churches in the world are built on the signs and the wonders and the miraculous and the spectacular and all of that. It's an aberration. It's a misunderstanding and a misapplication of Scripture. 
And the disciples with a knack for asking the wrong questions at the wrong time, they go into the house with Jesus away from the crowds, verses 28 and 29. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Jesus, why, why could we not drive it out? This would be the perfect moment for Jesus to have said, because you don't have enough faith, you need to go back, get your act together, and then try it again. It'll work. Now, it's got nothing to you. The writer of Hebrews chapter 2, I think verse 4, makes it clear that miracles, healings, and all those gifts are done as the Holy Spirit moves and determines and dictates at His will. Why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus said to them, because this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. I know that some of your Bibles have a marginal reading that says prayer and fasting. I can't go into textual criticism today, but by prayer is the more reliable rendering. Only Jesus and only Jesus' perfect faith and perfect ability can do the miracles the way he did them. And yes, he can delegate that as he did with the apostles. And as I believe he still does today. Oh, that might surprise some of you. Not that he can, but that he does. I can tell you many stories from personal experience. But only Jesus is the one who has perfect faith and perfect ability. If you can, posed to Jesus is a silly question. The disciples have neither perfect faith nor ability, so them speaking to the demon was fruitless. Not much discussion here at all by Jesus, and he reverts right back in the text to the whole point all along, verse 30 and 32. From there they went out and they began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. (laughs) It's there over and over and over again. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. So much repetition. He's telling, they're alone, remember? He's telling the disciples now, again, that the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. And again, this is what? This is at least the third time. But they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him now think back to what I said earlier concerning the disciples and trying a backdoor approach and maybe they were embarrassed and they didn't want to say no you ask him no you ask him no we've already asked him and he already said really are you so thick (laughs) no I'm not asking this time I stuck my neck out there now you do it this completely validates all that we're letting scripture Interpret Scripture. They were afraid to ask him. Not so littles. I heard, and then there's a blank for you to write something in, today but was confused. No, let's forget that part. Just put I heard. Just write that in there. (laughs) Hearing and believing that God is, blank, blank, fill it in, whatever, Changes the way I blank. P. 
parents, talk to your young'uns, your little'uns, about these things. That is your role. And if they got anything out of this today, I will praise the Lord. The Lord brings things into our lives and into our minds by his perfect timing. And again, my selection of Mark that's now over a year ago was not, as I said at the beginning, any preconceived idea. It was just like I just felt burdened for some reason. I'm supposed to go through Mark. And I, again, myself, have been amazed at the amount of repetition and the emphatic underscoring of the diminishing of the supernatural, wonder-working, miraculous of God. Not, not to throw it away, but to put it in its right place as compared to the life, death, and resurrection of the Savior come to redeem mankind from our sins. It's an aberration to discard the miraculous and focus only on the gospel. And at the same time, it's certainly an aberration to diminish or discard the gospel, focusing on the supernatural in the names of, of some nebulous, distant God. Father in heaven, these things are not easy. And I can only pray, Lord, that by the potency of your Holy Spirit that you will give our littles today some kind of nugget that will lodge within them. They may not even be aware of it, but that you will bring to mind later on in their lives. I pray, Lord, for the oldens and the biggins, <laughs> that through your Spirit you would take my confusing explanations and make them less confusing, but that we might marvel at your first appearance come to deal with our sin securing our eternity should we turn our lives over to you. You invite everyone always to do so. Today is no different. Give faith, God, I pray, to believe for the sake of your name. Amen.